What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology. You, you know what? I'm going to cut the intro. We have a lot to talk about. Game of Thrones is over. This is our bonus episode. Nothing cute, nothing fancy. I'm not wasting any fucking time. I have so much to say. Let's get into the finale of Game of Thrones. You ready to do this, Laurel? I absolutely am. Game of Thrones is over and we shall never see its like again. So how would you like to approach this episode? We have done a few recap episodes of every episode this season, and we structured those with our MVPs, our standout scenes, and our predictions for the future. But here's the thing. There's no more predictions There's no more Game of Thrones to look forward to. We're here to wrap up at the end. So how should we approach this? Let's just talk about it. I I think there's so much to say. Everyone everywhere is talking about it. I don't want to, you know, feel beholden to any structure or formula. I just want to open this up completely wide. I want to hear from you, Midnight Myth listeners. So hit us up on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. Tell us what you're thinking. Go to www.midnightmyth.com. Support us on Patreon. Buy some merch. Give us your money. Let's talk Game of Thrones. I need to know right out of the gate, Laurel, are you satisfied? Uh, I can't give you a yes or a no, uh, but I can tell you after multiple watches of the finale and a lot of hand-wringing, I am satisfied. So that's a a yes. You are satisfied. I am more or less satisfied. Okay. I am satisfied in part. I think there's a ton to get into in the specifics. I feel that Game of Thrones lost something that I truly loved and that I was hoping it would gain again, in particular in season seven and eight, that it never gained. And I think like the eternal optimist that I am, I always thought it would deliver what I was thinking the show was about in the finale, which, what does that mean? Nothing. But what I thought the show was about, what I thought the show was going to comment on, I thought would be in the finale, and it wasn't. When I, well, let me get a little specific here and not be so vague. I enjoyed Game of Thrones in part because it interjected different moral and political ideologies and systems that it enacted through the characters. One of my great joys of Game of Thrones has been trying to figure out the different moral or political system a particular character is advocating for and how that those characters advocated for those systems and then how those institutions reflected those characters and how they were used to either help or hurt people or do something in between or something morally gray. At the end of the day, Game of Thrones, through I'd say season one through five, was thematically linked to the question of what is the nature of power? Who holds power? Why should they hold power? What do those with power do when they have power? And it was one of the constant drumbeats thematically of the show and different characters arguing for different persuasions. The finale didn't have an argument to me fundamentally about the nature of power. The closest that it came to about the nature of power is the scene where John and Danny are talking And then Tyrion's speech at the Dragon Pit in which they end up naming Bran as king. 
Those are the areas that came very close to discussing the nature of power, but they both fell very flat. And I would argue they handled it with very little nuance. So what did we learn from the scene in the throne room? We learned that power corrupts, question mark, and... Like, we've known that since Lord of the Rings and long before. So what were you saying, Game of Thrones, that was new and different and unique and uh, in the vein of the shades of gray that the show has always given us? So I don't disagree with you there at all. I think the show tended to focus, in particular in season seven and eight, on the psychological dynamics between the individual characters. And I think that's really interesting and fun and cool. It's just not what I was into through season one through five. As a whole, as a just a standalone episode of television, it was great. Nitpicks, tons of nitpicks, which is not something I usually have with Game of Thrones, but it was great. There were a lot of awesome moments in particular, like all of season eight, the directing, sound design, the set design. They were phenomenal. They were jaw dropping. They were beautiful. From the shot with Daenerys with the dragon wings behind her as she's approaching the Unsullied and the Dothraki. Which I'm going to talk a little bit more about. Uh, to the uh, mirror images of Tyrion underneath the Red Keep, looking at the skull of an old dragon with light shining on him, and how that shot mimicked when Jon Snow walked up and Drogon comes out of the snow, which was fucking cool enough in and of itself. But then we see Jon Snow staring at the dragon, how those two shots were imaged, Image is not the word, how they echoed each other. Yeah. The visual storytelling in the first 45 minutes was jaw-dropping. But here I stand sitting, still wondering what it said about power other than a dragon can kill an iron throne. So let's get into it. Let's let's get a little more specific. You mentioned that you're satisfied. What are some of the things that you would like to call out here? Yeah. So I, as we begin, I guess uh, the best place for me to, to start is with uh, the opening sequences of this episode. As you know, it opens with Tyrion uh, wandering through the wreckage of King's Landing as it's been left in ruin after last week. And we see that Jon Snow and Davos are with him with some of their men and the horrors that they come across in the ashes of King's Landing. Uh, Grey Worm deciding to execute all of the living Lannister soldiers. It's really horrifying. Uh, and then we see the rally of the Targaryen forces uh, gathering to be addressed by their new queen, uh, the queen that they have followed to Westeros, who has now claimed the Seven Kingdoms. Beautiful, striking imagery there uh, as our queen with her amazing haircut uh, you know, walks out to address them. And we see this like really striking image. And then you mentioned the scene, the shot where... Drogon flies overhead and then behind her and his wings unfurl behind her so that it suddenly looks like she is sprouting dragon wings and they are exploding from her shoulders. I want to break that shot down just a little bit and talk about some of the visual references and cues that it's hinting at. Would that be okay with you? No. Just kidding. Podcast over. <laughs> no more podcast. No, please do. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure some other people picked up on this, but when I first saw this moment, the visual cue that came to mind was from a segment of the Disney film Fantasia called Night on Bald Mountain. If you've seen Fantasia, and especially if you saw this as a young person, this probably accounted for many of your nightmares growing up. And even if you saw this as an adult, it is a nightmarish sequence. Uh, it's set to the music of the tone poem, uh, St. John's Eve uh, at Night on Bald Mountain, I believe that's the name of it, by a composer uh, named Masorgsky. And the animation that is set to it features a demonic god named Chernobog, who comes from Slavic mythology and folklore, uh, who is considered, uh, though there's not a whole lot of evidence or like really hard evidence as to his role within Slavic cultures was considered part of a dualistic pantheon where there's a white God who is good and a black God who is bad and Cherno Bog in Slavic languages translates to black God. Uh, now, so that's what it visually cued for me. I saw 
Chernobog unfurling his wings at the top of Bald Mountain as he is about to uh, command his forces of witches and demons and creatures that are crawling out of the darkness in these sort of ghostly forms. He's been conjured by these forms and he will now command them. I so, totally get where you're coming from. Yeah, there. do you kind of see that connection, that visual connection? It is, and it's also one of my first hmm moments yeah. of the finale. Well, and it was something that I was thinking about too because we, uh, a while ago, did a uh, a character study of Daenerys where we... Uh, this was obviously before season eight, so we were talking about the sort of hints at changes in her character and the track that she had been on for the last seven seasons and how she was marrying this kind of classical hero's journey with all of this goddess imagery and, uh, you know, abundantly being classified as uh, above human and how we have seen her, uh, you know, her perception of herself as indestructible, as godlike, as you know, associated with mother and fertility goddesses and goddesses of love and beauty has changed. She has ceased to be the, you know, the white goddess of goodness and fertility and fortune and has transitioned even in her wardrobe into being this black goddess of darkness and death and destruction uh, instead of you know, the whiteness of just fire and flame and light she is the blackness of soot and ash. And so I thought there was an interesting visual connection there. Obviously, I've been really vocal on this podcast and elsewhere about not wanting to see Daenerys go evil, and so I was very disappointed by that change in her character, but I thought this was a beautiful visual way to uh, represent that. It also called to mind German expressionism and uh, you know, an adaptation of Goethe's Faust and the Faust legend uh, that is from a 1926 silent film by F.W. Murnau, his version of Faust. And Faust, of course, is about uh, you know a legendary alchemist who strikes a deal with the devil. So I'll post some of these images as well on our uh, social media. But I just thought it was beautiful. I thought in uh, in the same way that it was, of course, connecting her to the lineage of Targaryens trying to become dragons or likening themselves with dragons and her becoming the dragon in this moment. I thought it was also referencing, uh, you know, several decades of uh, visual storytelling that I was really struck by. I know I audibly gasped when I saw that when we were watching. Yeah, I mean, it's undoubtedly an amazing shot and it does inspire and connote that Daenerys has become the dragon and that that is evil that the dragon is not good. It is a, not a good thing that she has become the dragon and that she is given into her worst of her impulses. I found when she started giving the speech to the unsullied, where she names Grey Worm, the master of war, where she talks about that yeah. she'll find all of her enemies and kill them and the Dothraki and unsullied are cheering and cheering her on. That was a major disconnect moment that actively took me out of the story and watching it now a few times it does because I've seen that same Daenerys speech nearly word for word where it's been played with triumphant music with those cheers being cheers of joy with all of us ready to like yes this is amazing this is great Daenerys is gonna fight all of her enemies and but this time they made it very evil and they made it sound very evil and very menacing and very much like she's not going to stop conquering no matter what happens. Yeah, they put it in the context of dictatorship or demagoguery. And if they hadn't used such similar language to other speeches in the past, I don't know if I would have had that same, wait a minute, this is the same Daenerys will find her enemies wherever they are and defeat them speech that she gives all the time that she's given in many different seasons at many different levels and at, for, to many different people that have always been inspiring and triumphant. This time it's terrifying. And I would have liked to have seen different language instead of literally word for word things that she said to the Unsullied and the Dothraki before. It kind of hammers home. Why has Daenerys become so evil? She needs to be stopped. If her goals are the same that they've been this entire time. It's like, yes, yes, this is true. She did burn the city and like, that's fucking terrible. And I'm not trying to let her off the hook for that. There has to be a consequence for that. But it's like, you know, 
one way to communicate that she's a mad queen, it isn't to have her give a very similar style speech that I've literally cheered before. Like that kind of makes me feel a little like, oh, are they telling me I should have never cheered that? Because that's not what they were conveying in those scenes back in season two, three, four, five, and six. Well, I hear that. And then the scene that follows uh, with Tyrion as prisoner seems to hammer home that they are saying that, like, you shouldn't have been cheering this whole time. We wanted you to cheer in the moment, but here is a moment of reflection for you to realize how wrong you were. Like, that's that's what I get from that. Yeah, um, well, let's get into that scene, Which doesn't make too. me feel great, but, no, I, but, I, but I recognize it. Let's get into that scene, because I think that's where we start seeing the main theme of this episode. I do think this episode has a main theme, and I do think they connect it to the characters really well. And I think, so to say that it doesn't have a theme, like some of them I thought, oh, I don't really know what the theme is this. Sure. Well, that's not true. This one I felt had a theme, and it's choice. Yes, 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 yes. And Tyrion discusses choice in the scene with him and Jon Snow. And he says, hey, he he tries to describe exactly what happened to Daenerys and how she got here. And I think does so, like, I wish the show had done what Tyrion had described through Daenerys's journey. I think it would have been a more satisfying journey. But he describes that Daenerys burns the slavers in Astapor. We cheer because they're evil men. Daenerys then crucifies the people of Marine. We cheer because they're evil men. There gets to a point where because everyone's cheered Daenerys's violence, where Daenerys comes to believe she can adjudicate and use violence justly and nobody else can tell her otherwise. Because after all, why was everybody cheering? Everyone said, don't do it, don't do it. She did it. Everyone cheered. It's always worked out before. And in this, Tyrion is making a very structural argument that hey, the world kind of created this monster in Daenerys. Because she was using violence and everyone celebrated her use of violence and gave her the power to adjudicate life or death over her enemies, she came to believe that she could do so indiscriminately. And when she did so indiscriminately, she became a worse killer than both Tywin and Cersei combined. A very compelling argument. Yeah, and in that in that argument, you can say, you know what? I see where he's coming from. The disconnect to me is that the show did not tell me that in her journey. It took Tyrion to explain it to me after the journey to me be like, oh, I guess that's what they were saying. That I felt was a little. It's the word I'm looking for. I felt that it was a little bit of a letdown that they, if they had shown us the whole time that Daenerys's progression to the Mad Queen was a slow burn with her getting more and more comfortable and enjoying and relishing in destruction a little more every time that she did it. I think I'd be very accepting that she finally passed this gulf into just pure genocidal maniac. But I did like Tyrion's argument that it was like a slow progression. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I absolutely hear that. And I agree with you that, you know, I, I wish I had had more time. I wish I'd had more signs uh, I think the show in in a couple of the past seasons has felt like the audience wanted the surprise, wanted the rug pulled out from them more than they wanted to, you know, see uh, the sort of wounds festering on screen. A great example of that is the execution of Littlefinger in season seven. There's a deleted scene between Bran and Sansa that would have explained uh, Arya and Sansa, you know, conspiring against Littlefinger behind his back, but that scene is deleted. And so we get excluded from that emotional journey and we get the momentary shock of seeing Littlefinger's throat get cut, but we don't see this great moment for Sansa and Arya who are main characters on the show and we never see them reconcile. And that I think happens very much with Daenerys in the service of shocking us or surprising us or making us feel like, uh, you know, we should have seen this all coming, it excludes us from her emotional journey. And it does so, especially in the previous episode, The Bells, where we don't see Daenerys's face after she makes the decision to burn the city. And it does so in this episode, where as soon as she is done making that speech, she walks away and we are left with Jon and Arya. And while we do get a moment with her in the throne room alone to kind of process her emotions, we are by and large excluded from how she feels about what she has done. And I feel like that is a major loss 
uh, in a character that I loved deeply uh, and felt very distanced from in the final moments of her life. And it makes me excited for The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring when those books finally come out because I feel like we'll be invited into that emotional journey. Yeah, indeed, because we get point of view chapters from from exactly. Danny's point of view. You know, so Tyrion says a few other things that I thought were very interesting in the scene between Tyrion and John, where he encourages John to act and says, John, you will have always chosen to do what is right, no matter the cost. We now have a problem, and the problem is Daenerys. And Daenerys's power has grown so fast and so fiercely that she literally will mean to kill anyone and everything. And Tyrion is, he downright begs John to kill her, to which John still will uphold his vows at the end of the scene and won't change. But Tyrion plants the idea in John's mind that he has a choice, that he is free and he can act and he has the ability to do something about this. And he, and truly only he have only he only John that is has the ability to act something that John is not going to just sit there and agree to, but he must go and see Daenerys in another scene that the first time I watched fell flat. The second time yeah. I liked a lot more when John confronts Daenerys and they have a, a different argument about what is right and what is wrong about what is good and what isn't. Daenerys says things like, we can't hide behind small mercies. She says things like, I know what is good. And she, so do you. She says that, John, you and I together are going to build this world. It's going to be a better world. And John responds naturally like, what about other people and what they think is good? What if they're right and we're wrong? And Daenerys says, they don't get a choice. And that is where we solidify the fact that she has decided to remove others from the ability to choose what is good and, and right and what the best way to live is where she has passed the gulf between humanistic ruler there to unlock the freedom of individuals and unlock their power to full on tyrant. And when John hears that, that's when he knows Tyrion was right and he has to take her life. And I thought my second time watching that, that was a much better scene. And I thought it played with the theme of choice between Tyrion saying, you have a choice, to Daenerys saying, nobody has a choice anymore. Well, and in between those two things, John gives her a choice. John gives her a chance. He comes in and he is like, do you know, do you see what you've done? Is this what you want people to think of you? Can you please show mercy on Tyrion, show mercy to the people out there who you, you are having your man execute and prove them all wrong. Prove that you actually are the philosopher queen that you proclaimed to be. And she rejects that option. She chooses to continue on the track that she is. So he gives her that option. I want to rewind just for a moment because we're talking about that theme of choice. Yes. And just mention that Grey Worm introduces this as well when he is executing the Lannister army men where he says they are free men. They chose to follow Cersei. So it's something that we uh, follow this thread throughout the story as we are seeing uh, what people perceive as choice, what people perceive as free choice, sometimes they're not completely taking into account, such as the Lannister army, all of the sociological forces that lead people to make the choices that they do. <laughs> no, 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 I'm with, I'm with you because it's a disconnect because previous Game of Thrones would understand, uh, like one through five Game of Thrones would understand that nuance and be like, do the Lannister army, does they re, do they really have a choice or, or are they impressed into service and have to serve the Lannisters? Otherwise the Lannisters would kick them off the land and, and starve in their children, you know? So they don't really have a choice, but in the purposes of this episode, the theme of choice is present and people are holding others accountable because of their choices. Even yeah. Daenerys says, Hey, Cersei wanted to weaponize my mercy. So I had to show everybody that I can be uh, merciless. And that's how I, I will be able to overcome what is my perceived weakness. I made a choice to do that. They're all, like every single one of these, especially the first 45 minutes, every scene has at its core this idea of a choice. 
You know, um, if we're going to rewind, there's one thing that I do kind of want to call out that also really bugged me. Is that okay? I know that's a little negative. No, it's okay. Arya tells John, I know a killer when I see one. When she sees Daenerys and in the scene where Daenerys is giving the speech and she also makes a selfish ploy, a self-preservationist ploy to John saying, you have a real claim to the Iron Throne. You're a threat to her. And I know a killer when I see one. This line fell flat for me, and, and this is just my opinion, and maybe I'm right or wrong. I'm not a great writer like, you know, the, the writers on Game of Thrones are. But it's like every single fucking person it, that's alive in King's Landing is a fucking killer, Arya. You're a killer. So you're going to judge her for being a killer because she killed more? Like, what? what's the moral line here? You wiped out all of House Frey in a single night. But Daenerys burning King's Landing is too much. Like, where's the moral consistency? I know a killer. You better watch out, John. She's a killer. John's a fucking killer. John's executed children. Ollie, do you remember that back yeah, in season of six? Course. So it's like, so it's like that was just like, ah, oh, what's the philosophical consistency that Arya is warning John that Daenerys is a killer? Everyone in the show left at this point is a fucking brutal killer murderer some some have executed others some have murdered on the battlefield some have just straight up murdered aria has helped people commit has done everything from assisted suicide to um flat out mass poisoning but daenerys is the line that's like too like that's just like huh for a character aria that they've done so much justice in season eight i'm like well that line was fucking dumb and i just have to call that out okay we hear you. That's a nitpick. It's not like the major yeah. thing, but it's just like uh, everyone's a killer. Sorry. So John stabs Daenerys. It's very Buffy and Angel, um, and it's for the greater good. And Drogon shows up uh, and tries to revive his mother. It's very, very Simba and Mufasa. That was my cultural touchstone for that. And then dragons have developed symbolic reasoning. So, of course, he destroys the Iron Throne rather than the person covered in Daenerys's blood. I'll let it go. Yeah, I mean, the only one avenue by which I, I will give symbolic, not literal credence to, if the, the theme of the first 45 minutes is choice, Drogon made a choice not to kill Jon and burn everything else he could see. The only the thing sticking out in the room was the throne, so maybe in Dragon Mind, that's the big thing there, and he'll kill it. And he wasn't just trying to burn it because he was trying to burn the Iron Throne, the thing that destroyed his mom, ultimately. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. It It's not a good moment for the finale. It's not great. Uh, it was trying in my a view. little too hard. Yeah. In, in my view. Like, I don't need to be pandered to. I don't need to be... I don't need my themes... I want my themes in my show and I want my symbolisms in my artwork to be clear. I get frustrated when artists make too many riddles for me to unpack. It's one of the reasons why sometimes I get frustrated with shows like Twin Peaks. So I'm like, there's just a little too much riddle happening here. At some point, I just want to know, is there a good guy in this or a bad guy or what? You know, right, like, right, right. And I have a very high tolerance for ambiguity to where Twin Peaks is just the sweet spot for me. So that's just a difference in how we... It, yeah, know, just yeah. Pure, pure difference of opinion on the art we like to consume. But at the same time, I don't necessarily need to be pandered to. Yeah. I, I do think it's okay that I want to pause and think and reflect. What did that really mean? How did that really make me feel? And why did it make me feel that way? The scene with Drogon burning the throne didn't have any of that. It didn't make me think or feel anything special. It really felt like, in case you can't get the symbolism here of what really killed Danny, it was the throne. Power corrupts. Right. Anyway, let's move on from that. Where are we going next? I guess we're going to the dragon pit next. All right, so this is, I think, it's exactly 45 minutes in to the minute where they scene fades to black. They do a time jump. They focus on Tyrion's face just the way the episode started. His beard is considerably longer, and he is brought out to the dragon pit where there are all assembled the remaining great lords and ladies of Westeros to kind of try to figure out this mess. Um, This is another scene that I struggle with mightily. Yeah, I I struggle with it too, pretty tremendously. 
Although one of the great moments of the entire series is Sansa absolutely destroying Edmure Tully by saying, Uncle, please sit. I know, that was pretty awesome. I was very grateful for that. That was pretty great. Edmure, you were a joke before, and you're a joke now. And you're a joke now. And, and you'll always be a joke. Sansa is, you know. She's the queen. She's Sansa. So, so there's a few things about this that felt odd to me. I appreciate the idea that the power of a good narrative and the power of a good story is unbreakable, impenetrable. You can't kill it. It will spread. It will grow. And yeah, that's what our podcast is about. And, and there is a tremendous amount of power in that. And I, I respect that that's Tyrion's sort of philosophical view on why Bran should be king, where it doesn't just flat out make sense to me. Just about every character in that group has as equal or compelling or better or enriching good story that they can tell about themselves and how they got to this point alive. So why Bran? You know, so Bran's story is particularly compelling and that involves magic and wizardry. But hasn't this show taught us that in some level, people without the pragmatic skills to rule can't do it? I mean, we see this when Danny first holds court in Marine and all of the failures and all of the political missteps and how that ends up breeding an insurrection in the Sons of the Harpy. Um, we see this in Ned Stark when he goes to King's Landing and he kind of poo-poos the intricacies in politics that people like Varus and Littlefinger are trying to tutelage him and warn him about, and he just doesn't want to do it. And just goes like a bull in a china shop and tells Cersei that he knows the children are illegitimate, which precipitates this whole bloody affair. Um, there's been a clear lesson that you kind of do need some depth and skill and knowledge of politics if you're going to be able to effectively govern and rule. And it seems like they're like, nah, all you really need to do is talk to trees. Right. And the show has also dealt uh, in the later seasons of once John's parentage came to light. Uh, it, it has said many times that maybe the best person to rule is someone who doesn't want it. But the show has never shown us that too. The only people who have come near or sat on the throne who didn't want to rule are, to a certain extent, Robert, who had, you know, several years on the throne, but hated it and was not very good at it and ended up getting, you know, dethroned by murder. And then you Ned, mean Robert Baratheon, not, yeah, Robert not Baratheon. Rob Stark. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then we had uh, Ned Stark as hand, you know, taking over uh, as the regent while Joffrey came of age and he hated that and he got his head cut off for it. And then we have this idea that John will come into his rule and uh, somehow be great at it, even though he hates it or Bran will be great at it, even though he claims to not want it. So I have, I see a lot of tension in that assertion that people who don't want to rule will actually make the best rulers because we've never seen that be tremendously true. Right. And it also undercuts the idea that the three-eyed Ravens role, and we'll talk about this in our brand specific podcast, which is coming, but the three-eyed Ravens role is to be more the Merlin to the King Arthur, is to be the observer that lives in all times, that helps and shapes events to make sure that the world never gets too bloody or too dark or too brutal. And giving that person the absolute monarchical power as the king of these six kingdoms um, undercuts that theme of why there would be a three-eyed raven thematically to begin with. Bran has said things like, I don't want anymore. While on one hand, we can read that the renunciation of desire... An ego. An ego makes him an impartial arbiter. On the other hand... How is Bran going to manage the debt to the Iron Bank? How is Bran going to build up an institution of secrets to spy on the other houses of Westeros uh, that they don't have godswoods because they've chopped them all down because they believe in the faith of the seven. So he can't just, you know, go right into a tree and see what they're doing. Yeah, on the other hand, what are his policies going to be now that the North is free? What happens if he needs the North to rule? How is he going to appease the Iron Islands and their ways that Yara agreed to stop raiding 
and taking and pillaging, well, who's going to give them food? Where's their food going to come from? Because that's how they feed themselves. That's why they do all the pillaging. Where are his answers to any of these questions? How is he even remotely prepared for them? The end of the day, they gave up the structural political arguments that set this story in motion in favor of a psychological and more um, into the individual and the individual's frame of reference. Tyrion thinks the idea of a good story is what makes a good king, so they name Bran. Sansa supports it because it's her brother and that she can live with it. The other lords and ladies support it because they do. Nowhere is there a political argument for why Bran should be the choice. I want to get a little historical and granular here. Is that okay? Of course. Will you permit me a side tangent? Oh my God. Don't, do I ever not? The system of government of the Westerosians is absolute monarchy. That means that a king rules unchecked. What the king says is law. There is no example of an absolute monarchy, in particular in Western Europe that I know of, that doesn't have a secession plan that works. Specifically, the Carolingian Empire. It is the empire that brought the end of the quote-unquote Dark Ages and the formation of medieval Europe as we know it. It formed the Holy Roman Empire. Charlemagne made a Franco-Germanic-Prussian Empire that was mammoth, reclaimed the title of emperor, and out of the Dark Ages after the collapse of the Roman Empire, then forged this new land and this new territory. It fell almost immediately into chaos and didn't work because he gave all of his sons equal parts of land, and they instantly went to war for each other for control. The whole bloody affair of this narrative started because there was a disagreement over who would be king. Yep. That's the wheel. If we don't know who the king is, if there's a disagreement between the two most powerful houses, the Starks and the Lannisters, over who will be king, there'll be civil war. What makes us think that at the end of Bran the Broken's life, suddenly they'll get all the lords and ladies together and they'll be like, all right, here's someone else who can't father any children who can become king. What makes us think there won't be a civil war? If you're going to break the wheel, as Dan, as T Tyrion says, this was the wheel our queen wanted us to break, that we could choose the king. We could choose who could be our ruler. What makes us think, considering that the lords and ladies of Westeros couldn't agree on it at the start of this war, that anything majorly has changed that they'll agree at it at the end of Bran the Broken's life? Has this wheel even moved? Or is everyone just crushed beneath it? The fact that they didn't address the major structural political arguments started in season one, episode one, rather just re-perpetuated. There's an absolute monarch who rules with an oligarchic small council, all of the same institutions that were so easily corrupted and so easily led to civil war are all still there. No changes in any one of them whatsoever. Do we honestly think that this is a lasting peace? Do we honestly think that they have made any progress? And in other words, if there hasn't been any progress, was any of this blood, treasure, and sacrifice these characters went through worth it? What was the progression? And I just, in, in a show that was always about politics, the Game of Thrones means, E-G-E, absolute monarchical politics, the politics of the throne, without a new political argument there, without a new political structure there, without some sort of form to show us that they've learned anything and gotten better or wiser, I leave myself at the dragon pit scene being like, man, what the fuck this was, what was this journey even worth? Uh, so I don't disagree with you. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there are a lot of us questioning today what this show, what a lot of things in this show uh, really meant or why they existed at all. For me, you know, this was the kind of feeling that I had after episode three where I was like, okay, I guess myth, magic, prophecy, and these fantasy elements were not actually important to the show that I watched primarily for those things. So I can understand how you're feeling. And I agree. You know, the wheel turns on. Uh, the wheel continues to move. And I, uh, I, I think the difference between us here is that I never expected the wheel to be broken. And I 
wouldn't have I wouldn't have liked it if they ended this show saying the wheel is broken. We fixed the world. We're all going to go forward and have peace and prosperity. Can, can I can I just respond to that point real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't ever think they would either. I'm yeah. not saying that. I'm just saying that it would have been nice for a shred of progress, other than one character saying. What about democracy? No, you idiot. Yeah, right. And then and then them saying, well, why don't us lords just choose the king every time the king dies and keep everything else the same? Being like, huh? So here's what I am going to say, and here's what I am going to argue for the modicum of progress that was made on this show over the last eight seasons. If we look at the people, if we look at the characters that we have followed this entire time and where they all end up, especially those who end up on the small council, I think we actually have a shred of hope to cling to. Even though, you know, the Iron Islands are ripe for a rebellion, even though Dorne was pledged to Daenerys and could possibly try to become, uh, you know, independent again now that the North is suddenly an independent kingdom, we do have an interesting array of people on the small council who represent different political ideologies and philosophies than the people who normally would have sat at, like Tywin Lannisters and Mace Tyrells. So let's look at it. We have the Master of Coin, Braun of the Blackwater, a sellsword, a, a man who would have just slit throats to get his way to the top and got Highgarden, became Lord Paramount of the Reach just because he had the right friends in the aristocracy and they elevated him to this position. So someone who was once just frequenting the brothels and knows the common folk through that is now Master of Coin. We have Samuel Tarley as the Archmaester. He is a character who was born into a great house, but was exiled to the wall because he was not considered worthy of being part of that great house. And he's brought wit and intelligence and compassion and love to the table. And poetry. Uh, as much as I thought the uh, A Song of Ice and Fire thing was a little too cheeky for me, he's brought poetry to the small council. We have Sir Davos Seaworth as the master of ships, a man from Flea Bottom, the Onion Knight who was a smuggler and had his fingers cut off by Stannis Baratheon and who never thought he would survive one of these battles, but he loves the common folk, he loves children, he fights for the little people. We have, who else do we have? We have Sir Brienne of Tarth, the first woman knight in Westeros, the first woman knight of the Seven Kingdoms, is now serving as Lord Commander of the King's Guard. And this is a perfect example. Uh, in episode two, we saw people realize that they had a choice, that the systems laid out for them were unfair, and that the only thing keeping them in place was the older generation. And now that they are the generation in charge, they can make their own choices. They can make their own rules. And so by putting all of these people who have decided to make their own choices, who have these special sensitivities to the people of the realm who are not just uh, you know, the aristocracy or the great houses, uh, by putting those people on the small council, we have one shred of hope that we are moving toward a more enlightened society. Beautiful point. I have no rebuttal. I think that is an amazing way to look at it. And I really appreciate that perspective. And yet it's also telling that on the small council, other than the hand, you have two right. people of commoner descent and two people of noble, noble descent. The one thing that I'd say, I guess as partial rebuttal, it seemed like they, all of these characters fell into pretty, typical King's Landing squabbles right out of the gate. Absolutely. Where the master of coin just wants to hoard the coin and doesn't want to give anything unless it's to invest in brothels where they're just not respecting the grand maester and what they have to say and do whatsoever. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so it seemed like a very typical meeting of the small council that we have seen before, which leads me to the belief, despite the amazing, the amazement. So this is where I say where it's ground in the psychological, not the structural, despite the amazing journey that these characters went through and how happy that I am to see in particular, these characters on the small council and the victories that these characters have gone through to get there in particular with Sam Davos and Brienne got like my three favorite characters on the whole show, right, pretty, yeah. you know, like pretty much like, 
the fact that they all are there is really amazing and that they all deserve it. And they've gone through the journey where they deserve it. The question is, do the people deserve this small council? And the answer to that decidedly is no, I don't, I didn't get a sense at least from that scene that you have anyone that was arguing there primarily. Well, on the same time, there was a decided argument to work on things like basic water sanitation yeah, and feeding the people. So there were some arguments there. So I, okay. I get what you're saying. It's still, it's symbolic. It, you know, it's, it, it's not literal. Yeah. It's Rome wasn't built in a day. Nothing. So here's the thing. Nothing fundamentally has changed in Westeros. Okay. Yeah. Nothing has. Right. You know, the, they're the, the high born, is free. they're the high born, they're the low born. The North is free. We're not, we have no idea what arrangement there was because they chose not to even show us right. very on Game of thrones to not understand how this alliance was made or forged. It's literally Brad shaking his head down. Yeah, and I mean, the like, dragon pit scene could have been a whole season of Game of Thrones, if we're being honest. There's enough tension and enough, you know, politics there. Sure, or, you know, yes, th- this is true. Just to point out a few historical examples. So the historical inspiration for game of thrones is the war of the roses. This takes place post Renaissance. The quote unquote modern world is when this happened, whether it was or wasn't very debatable because it feels very medieval, but this is the war that inspired the game of thrones song and ice and fire series. And at the end of this bloody battle where the two houses and I'm not an expert on this history, so I might brutalize this, but the Lancasters and the Yorks Yorks. Thank you. were at war for the throne. In comes the Tudors who end up forming the Tudor dynasty and the Tudor dynasty is not without its tyrants. Think of King Henry the eighth and how many wives he had, but it also got us queen Elizabeth. It also got us William Shakespeare It also got us the defeat of the Spanish Armada and the formation of the new British naval empire, which would go on to be the dominant empire in human history. There is a clear line of progression that this battle, this War of the Roses, meant something in English history. It wasn't clear to me what this conveyed at all. You know, so in England at the time, there was the formation of a thing called Parliament, with a house of lords that were able to debate different laws. There was some measure moved forward. The fact that the show literally laughed at the idea of self-determination. Yeah, that was kind of tacky. Literally laughed, had all of the characters laugh it and laugh it out of the council that they were going to go to pick who the next leader should be was really emblematic of where those lords were. They're not people that want to give any infringement or freedom to any of their citizens whatsoever. And it felt it felt to me that the very narrative about what it means to be power in power, what a king should or shouldn't do or a queen, how do you get there? All of those questions are so fundamentally unresolved and it still leaves me scratching my head a little bit. Yeah, I absolutely understand that. I absolutely understand that. I think, uh, you know, we are clearly in, uh, you know, a reconstructive period that is just totally ripe for uprisings and rebellions. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we don't get to go along on this journey anymore. And we don't get to see the inner workings of how it was rebuilt, how it continues to be rebuilt, and how King Bran will put down the uprisings that come against him. Cause God knows, you know, the, the, the North is free. Now we have all of this sort of thematic exploration of what it means to be free and have choice and have self-determination. Uh, and we get the sense that the wheel is far from broken. Like we've said, pragmatism, which has been a thought of the show would say that Davos, Tyrion, Sansa, and Yaren, Yara, pardon me, all would have been better choices. Yeah. All, any four of them would have done a better job ruling the six kingdoms. Let's uh, let's pivot. What yeah. do you think of, because after that, it really becomes about the coda of the Starks. Yes, it does. What do you think of the coda of the Starks? I thought this was wonderful. Um, I'm going to say two out of three. Yeah, are, is, is Arya going to be the one who... Uh, you say is you the, go first. So, 
I, I want to address that real quick because I, I think I agree. It does feel a little bit out of left field. Um, Arya feels a little bit like she did say at one point what's west of Westeros and she's shown a sort of curiosity. Um, but then all of a sudden she's just more interested in figuring out why the map stopped there and what's beyond there and wants to become Columbus. Okay, great. For me, that felt less about being motivated by uh, discovering what's west of Westeros and more about uh, someone who has seen the horrors of, of war, someone who has been on the ground, a soldier who has served her time, uh, who has done enough for Westeros and deserves to take off, deserves the opportunity to find you know a new world that's not locked in this sort of broken system that led to her having to make the choices that she did. She is extremely capable of striking out on her own, and I think she will, and I think she'll thrive. But I think it's less about figuring out what's west of Westeros and more about saying, I'm done with this continent because it's been pretty cruel to me and my family. Um, Sansa's queen in the north. I thought that was stunning. I thought that was beautiful and a, 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 a fantastic way to wrap up the arc of this woman who started out wanting to be the queen of the seven kingdoms, wanting to be the wife of the handsome prince and then the handsome king and wanting to have his babies and wanting to be like a lady in a song. She was misled by these tales of courtly love. She was misled by the chivalric tradition. She was led to believe, you know, that becoming the, the perfect lady was all she could ever aspire to. And what she found was that her family, her people, her country were more important to her than the idea of power. So coming into her power as queen in the north was not about just being uh, the one in charge. It was about serving. And I think that was a, a wonderful way to bring together everything uh, that she has been through and everything that she has uh, survived and thrived through. And then there's John. And I think Jon Snow, although he's never been my favorite character, I've always liked Jon, but I've always felt a little like, oh, what flavor of vanilla are we having today with Jon Snow? I thought Jon Snow pitch perfect. The end of Jon Snow's story for me uh, brought the whole show together brought the whole finale together. I thought it was fantastic um, for this character who asserted that he didn't want the throne and had so many people try to push him to take it, uh, finally got freedom, finally got to embrace starkness, finally got to say, you keep telling me I'm a Targaryen, but I'm telling you I'm a Stark, and I'm telling you I won't kneel. I'm telling you I will be free. I'm telling you I will go where my heart is with my ghost. Um, and I thought for a character who I have frequently likened to King Arthur, uh, and there was a blog I wrote before this um, new season came out about how much he's on this sort of King Arthur track. Uh, even though he never sat the throne, his Arthur track was complete for me. He started out as the bastard, uh, you know, raised in humble origins, raised believing that he was nothing, and yet his, uh, you know, his nobility and his uh, ability in combat and his sort of knightly honor couldn't help but shine through. He was the typical, what they call in the Arthurian tradition, the fair unknown. Uh, and then he discovered his royal lineage. He brought people together. He united people against an existential threat in the White Walkers in the coming winter, and he won, and he inspired a nation and brought so many desperate armies together, and he became a symbol like King Arthur. And then, without sitting on the throne, he went beyond the wall, and he sailed off to Avalon like Arthur did, to you know the Isle of Apples, where he will perhaps one day be reborn. Uh, and I, I thought it was just a, a, a perfect end to his story. Yeah, I um, I like every point that you just made. Um, I don't have too much to add. 
I will add that the way that they shot both Arya, Sansa, and Jon's last sort of the coda of the Starks, I call it, was beautiful from yeah. from Jon's sword to Arya's sword to Sansa's hand uh, to the swords shouting Queen of the North to, you know... To the wildlings parting reverently as uh, he's walking through them. To Jon having lost so much friends and family to get into Castle Black and to see Tormund was to me just what a good moment that like John still has a friend that he can see and he could interact with and talk to. And then wham, the ghost is there. So it's like, it's all hope is not lost for him to actually have friends and people that he loves and his animal to be with him. Um, I, in terms of reading John's end, because you said it's like, King Arthur going to Avalon. I'd like to ask, I don't want to necessarily butt up or challenge it, but I think it's a worthwhile discussion. And I think the question should be when we see John get to castle black, he dons all black showing that he has every intention of, 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 of being a man of the black, being a crow again of saying the vows of the night's watch. Now, there's certainly an argument to be said that with the white walkers gone, why is there a night's watch? Even John says that, and Tyrion's just like, I don't know, we need a penal colony to sell well, yeah, send bad people. Yeah, he says the world will always need a place for cripples and, bro- and um, broken things. Yes, which then again goes back to my original point about power. But you know what? You're in charge now. Can't you make a new place for that? Why does it have to be the old one? But anyway, but different consider, argument. you know, people thought that the White Walkers had been gone for thousands of years and there was still a, night, a Night's Watch. So it's it's always been there. It's always been... I, uh, you know, accept it as this thing that the... It, it, either way, it narratively, it makes no sense for there to be a Night's Watch anymore. Okay. They made peace with the wildlings. So, if, but anyway, I'm hunkering down in the wrong details here. In terms of finalizing John's character, it seems like he has every intention to retake the vowels, retake the black, and hold them true in his heart and become a man of the Night's Watch again. However, when he is walking out with the wall, with all the wildlings... The first read was like, okay, he's got to help them find a place to live. Then he's going to go back to Castle Black and probably be instant Lord Commander or something like that. However, he looks when the door closes. He looks at the kids. He looks at Tormund. He looks at Ghost. And he smiles. Yeah. Do you read that as he's saying, fuck you, Castle Black. I'm part of the free folk now. I think there is just just enough ambiguity to it. But it does feel to me like Frodo, you know, riding off into um, uh, into the Grey Havens when he's finally able to smile again, when he realizes he's free of the game, he's free of, you know, everything that he has been through. He has this chance to finally rest. And I think it's a choice. I don't think he's saying, fuck you to Castle Black. I think he's saying, I've realized at this point that I have a choice on whether or not I go back. And I don't think the answer is there. I don't think the answer is completely decided on, but I like to believe he rides off and doesn't stop riding. I like to believe that he goes farther north than he's ever been before because he's got the real north in him. Yeah, that is exactly how I would like to read that. I don't know if that's, quote unquote, the correct way to read it. Right. But it's how I am reading it that, yes, he has the true north in him. He has done his service and duty to the realm he deserves to be the place that he has was the most happy, which was with the wildlings. And Jon Snow's character, the, one of the best aspects of it and why we love him and why he is such a great hero was because he felt empathy for the wildlings. Yeah. He fell in love with the wildlings. Tormund is one of his closest and best friends. He decided to take the wildlings and put them on the other side of the wall because every other knight or lord commander would just say, fuck it, give him to the White Walkers, except for John. And that empathy he has for the Wildlings is one of his greatest characteristics. And I think it's fitting to say that he ends the show going off and joining the Wildlings. Yeah, I do too. I think it's wonderful. All right. Where do you want to go from here? I think we've had a really interesting discussion and so much in this episode. You know, we didn't even get to the really beautiful and moving scene of Tyrion discovering Jaime and Cersei's bodies under the rubble of King's Landing. So many striking images, obviously issues and problems and, you know, some moments where they didn't quite stick the landing. But I think where it counted, for me, they did. And, you know, there are 
things that you said, like they, they failed to address so many of the things that uh, made Game of Thrones Game of Thrones. And I think that's been true um, about several of the ways that they have concluded uh, certain arcs this season. But for me, I'm overall pretty satisfied and grateful that this show existed and brought us all together. I can't be the real game of Thrones was the friends we made along the way. I can't imagine the challenge of doing an adaptation that ran out of source material, but still had many seasons of TV that it had to do. I have so much admiration and respect for the team of game of Thrones, for the writers, the directors, the production designers, The things that they did in these episodes have been truly groundbreaking, and it's proven that TV can be both smart, engaging, symbolic, deep, complicated, that you don't need to dumb down and pander to your audiences. It has spurned the most amazing, crazy, and intense fan discussions of anything that I have ever seen in my life, save for Star Wars and Harry Potter. It's on that level. This is the cultural moment of collective artistic commercial storytelling. It's a thing that's going to resonate with us. And if you ask me how I feel about the finale, I have one thing to say. Ask me again in 10 years. (laughs) And until next time, be kind.